This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you listeners for spending another 30 minutes of your precious time with us as today we talk about the politics of Build Back Better. President Joe Biden's ambitious signature legislation aimed at what he calls historic changes to areas such as affordable housing, education, nutrition, and child tax credits, of course paid for by heavily taxing those making over $400,000. And we have two experts today, Kevin Fogarty, former chief of staff for New York Republican Congressman Peter King, and Elizabeth Stanley, who was on the other side, uh, top aide to uh, New York Democrat Rita Lowy. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us, Jerry. Thank you for having us. Sure. So talk a little bit about this legislation, Kevin. I guess I'll start with you. What do you think? It's very controversial, obviously, in our polarized legislature. What do you think? Well, you know, we're dealing with the 50-50 Senate. So you have to realize that any one member can unilaterally impose their will. And so you're always hoping for the best. But the priority for the Democrats now is to get to 50 votes. And right now they're sort of in this waiting game as they're pushing the president's Build Back Better agenda. They want to try to get this done by the end of the year. Um, But, you know, they could be forced to wait until 2022. Um, And certainly a lot's going to be riding on Senator Manchin. Um, You know, there's sort of some loose deadlines that Senator, uh, the Senate Majority Leader Schumer has sort of floated and he wants to try to get this done by Congress. But for me and, 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 when I'm done, I'll let Elizabeth disagree or if she can take elaborate more clearly or concisely than I can. But for me, the timeline is really going to sort of hinge on two reports coming out. So uh, tomorrow, Friday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics are going to have their inflation data for November. And for months, Senator Manchin has been sort of one of the few Senate Democrats to raise concerns about. Uh, rising inflation. And he focused on it again this past Tuesday in some comments um, at a forum. And in the past, he's asked for a strategic pause. And so depending for me, it's sort of depending on the numbers that come out tomorrow, that that could be an indication if we're going to be fighting or angling over until 2022. The other issue too is the Congressional Budget Office is also expected to unveil what I guess would be their 10-year, I'd say, for a dissection of the bill. And certain reports are indicating that it's going to show that the nearly $2 trillion bill would cost more than almost $4 trillion over 10 years if mm-hmm. if all the provisions are extended over a decade. So that's it. Now, that, that may not happen. That may not be true. These are what the reports are indicating. But for me, if you combine, say, inflation still high and you combine a higher price tag on the bill, for the Democrats, that's going to make it a little bit harder to get um, Manchin. And I don't know what uh, Senator Kristen Sinema, um, I don't think she's as dug in as Manchin is on this, but certainly, um, you know, it's going to be a much tougher haul to try to get this done by Christmas if those two numbers come out the way that they're expected to. What's your thought on the legislation itself and, you know, what he's trying to propose? Very ambitious. Um, you know, everybody, when they do a package like this, they say it's the new the new deal. It's the, it's the new, new deal. Uh, what's your thoughts on, you know, what he's trying to do here? 
Well, I, I sort of come on that sense where Senator Manchin's talking about a strategic pause because the feeling is like we're trying to get everything done before the midterms. And you certainly want to have legacy markers. But what we're dealing with on so many levels right now um, and what we're able to do with the infrastructure package, but again, now with this new variant on COVID, you know, I'm not sure what is going to be in best interest of the economy. And I don't know necessarily. Now, Democrats will argue that passing this bill will help the economy, will help inflation. But I'm a little bit skeptical on that. And I, I sort of agree with Senator Manchin that maybe it's time to take a little bit of a, a little pause and see how things lay out uh, coming in the months in early 2022. So, Elizabeth, this is the part where you say, Kevin, you ignorant slut. And then you go into your, <laughs> you go into your thing. <laughs> she says tell it me. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Elizabeth, tell me what your thoughts are. Well, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, the the political challenge, Kevin just laid out really well. We also have process and procedure, and I think it'll be a little clearer once the Senate is able to fully get through the parliamentary side of this next week and put out all of the numbers. I think that's where you saw the rubber quickly meet the road with House passage, and I think that that will give us what we need to, quote, seal the deal. Mm -hmm. Um there will be a political challenge. I mean, obviously, these are reports that everyone will be looking forward to coming out about the economy. But um, anyone looking to stall the bill or to oppose the bill could certainly point to any number of reports coming out on an ongoing basis in the government into next year or anytime. So I think Democrats are certainly going to be feeling the pressure to get done a lot of what is in this bill we're approaching the holidays. A lot of families have a lot of strain that could be relieved by the legislation, that could be relieved by exciting, transformative policies to give American families help with childcare and universal pre-K, um, help with seniors on prescription drug costs, you know, assistance um, for so many other um, housing and, and other needs that American families really need this legislation to be enacted. And I think in the end that that will win the day. And, and Kevin, you kind of hit on it. The midterms are coming up and everybody has the feeling that the Democrats will take back the House, which has traditionally happened over the past few presidents. Um, so in a sense, do you think that this is Biden's last gasp? I mean, he has to get this passed because just like Obama during his presidency, he was kind of neutralized in those second two years because he had lost the uh, lost the legislature. What's your thoughts? Well, sure, because I mean, I think, you know, as I alluded to earlier, when, when you're dealing with such a narrow um, majority, um, it, it's harder to get some of these things done because you're really hurting cats. And the Dems are using this budget reconciliation to try to, to pass this the spending deal. So they need total unity from all their 50 members, or, you know, possibly they've been after rely on the vice president to, to to break a tie. So their, their room for error is quite small. And I think they realize that as they start turning and you start looking at the midterm, this is, it's a now or never type approach. And it's not to say they still can't get something done in 2022 before the midterms, but what they've been able to run through in the house, et cetera. You know, I just don't think, I think the room for error is just way too small for them. And so for me, this is the best chance for them to get it done. 
And, um, you know, we've seen this with, with other pieces of legislation and let's, you know, there's politics being played. Oh my goodness, politics. But, um, you know, mansions, cinema, they're coming from Republican states, red states, and, um, they've got to worry about their constituency and how much is that playing, Elizabeth? How much is this people looking back at their districts and saying, Hey, I got to watch the way I vote on this. I mean, I think that's a concern with anything you do, but I would say in terms of the political dynamics to get back to a couple of things, Kevin said, um, first and foremost, I think Democrats want to do this as quickly as they possibly can because they believe it's the right thing to do. And because we want to get, help to the American people. And we want to do some big things to address some of the biggest crises we face. Um, I would say second to that, obviously, the sooner we can do that, the better on the political front, because you can begin to execute and tell the story of the success of the Biden agenda and what unified democratic government in Washington has been able to do and deliver for the American people. If you look back at the Affordable Care Act, it took 15 months into President Barack Obama's first term to pass that major piece of legislation. And in terms of size and breadth, you know, we are making changes uh, across a lot of different areas, not just singularly focused on health care here. Um, I think there are some strategic reasons in terms of the actual benefits that the legislation could provide to people to get it done this year. No one wants there to be a break in the child tax credit expansion that is getting checks to families on a monthly basis now, certainly right after the holidays when many families will have spent more money and stretched themselves thinner. We don't want them to then not receive a check that they're relying on and have for the last many months. So, um, I think on a policy and political front, obviously, Democrats would like to get it done sooner rather than later. But if this slides into next year, that doesn't mean that it will necessarily be a problem at the midterm election. And you mentioned inflation, and that's really been a, a, a big deal in this Biden administration. We're seeing it, uh, you know, uh, creek up there. And, uh, you know, I was talking to a woman, she's a healthcare worker and she was, she's a Democrat and she drives around all day. And she said, Hey, you know, these gas prices are killing me. It's just cutting into my salary. And she says, I'm, I'm ready to go to the other side. And it, it's always the economy, stupid. I mean, that's, that's always been the, 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 the way people vote. Um, is there a, a chance, Elizabeth, that you're going to lose some people because of this prices and, and just, how things are going out there? Well, I, we are a world away, a lifetime away from the midterm elections, and a lot can happen between now and then. So I wouldn't say that we know today that that is going to be a concern for us. I think it's a concern across government and for Democrats to do things to address a lot of the economic issues that are facing Americans right now, um, gas prices, inflation, the supply chain, um, stalls that we see. Um, and a lot of the other pieces I mentioned in terms of housing costs, healthcare costs, things that we've been talking about for a very long time that we hope to deliver on soon. Kevin, do you think that I, I'm kind of surprised by this this reaction to this inflation issue? Because I, I don't know that you can blame Biden for it. I mean, he's only been in there, what, two years. What's your thoughts? He's going to get blamed for it anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Elizabeth's right, too, because things can change by the midterms on this stuff. But it's always, you know, the party in power. Right. And right now, the Dems are in the position where they have the House, the Senate and the White House. Um, so naturally, 
you know, voters right now, what they're dealing with inflation, yeah, they're going to be angry at the people in power. And that's, and that can happen to the Republicans at any time. But right now we're dealing with that. And I think that was sort of my point with the inflation is that if Senator Manchin is concerned about it um, and they want to get this bill done now, if inflation is still high, then he's going to have his concerns and it's going to be a lot tougher. But like as Elizabeth alluded to, you know, some of these things can go away by the time we're getting to August of next year. Uh, whether or not the supply chain issues will subside if inflation is down, you know, th- that can change everything. Um, and that's not to say that it may be a more favorable environment for the Dems to try to get some done. But I understand why they would want to get it done as quickly as possible. Like Elizabeth Can they said. get it done? I mean, you know, those things will be issues for the election. But I mean, you're talking about this, trying to get this done now. And then. Um, yeah. So that's what it is. It's it's getting to that 50. And if they can get it to that 50, yeah, they can get it done. And we, we talked about Manchin before, and Elizabeth, you can, you can kind of weigh in on this. We had a whole podcast on Manchin because he has really become uh, the vote in the Senate. And he seems to do this political dance where he says, ah, nah, nah, nah. And then in the end, I think I recently saw he voted with Biden 80%, 90%. Um, Elizabeth, do you think he comes around on this one? I do. I think we get there. I think it's important to everyone in the Democratic Party, including Joe Manchin, that we succeed as Democrats. And this is the agenda that we've put out and we may need to make a few further changes to it. The legislation has obviously changed dramatically since it was initially introduced and then passed in the House of Representatives. So I do think we will ultimately get there. And in terms of timing, too, I would point out, you know, and Kevin knows this from time on the Hill, that no matter who's in the majority or the minority and who may be in the hot seat on a whip count, Um, the motivation to spend the holidays with your family and to get Mm -hmm. a break can be amazing. (laughs) It can have (laughs) quite the impact to get things done more quickly than you think. And Senator Schumer, yes, Majority Leader Schumer's plan right now is to get through the rest of the procedural hurdles next week with the parliamentarian's office and then move to the legislation um, the week after that. So um once once the rubber meets the road in terms of us actually having the legislation packaged and ready to go and needing to put final touches on it in terms of negotiation and agreement the closer we get to christmas the more pressure i think there will be for us to get something done the senate leadership could you know keep its members here up until Christmas Eve, force the members to come back between Christmas and New Year's. We've done that before. It's mm-hmm. not fun I, for anyone. I, I, so. I have spent a couple of Christmas Eves in the Senate. <laughs> yes, I have. Yep. And uh, Santa Claus was not happy. Santa Claus <laughs> no, was not no. happy. But um, it, it, why is this always happening? I mean, um, and, and Kevin, I want you to talk a little bit about CBO because listeners, we, you and I and Elizabeth, we talk CBO and all the language, almost like a whole nother language we have. But explain CBO and how important that is in, in this legislation? Well, it, the idea is that you're getting sort of an independent, if you will, uh, assessment of the legislation so that you're trying to figure out exactly what you're dealing with and what you have. You know, the politics are always going to be around. So uh, the idea is that people are going to play politics with those numbers. But with CBO, the hope is that you can point to something and say, no, this is the case or this is the facts. Um, and how people want to spin that, they, they're they going to do that. But I think Elizabeth agrees. It's just 
it's an idea of like you're trying to create this independent arbiter or assessment, if you will, uh, so that you can either move forward or not move forward. And to me, it's just important, depending on what concerns are raised by individual senators or members, um, it can sometimes point you in the right direction where things might be going. Yeah, and it's an important number. I mean, when, when that comes out, you're right. Everybody points to it and, and says, well, this is what they say. This is, what's that old line about statistics, right? <laughs> and um, and uh, th- that's uh, that's what's going to happen. That's a, it's a very important report coming out. Well, I think, you know, in the past it used to be, we, I think we used the term like a billion here, a billion there, lead to, you know, it's eventually <laughs> money. But now, I mean, it's serious. You can say a trillion here, a trillion there. Right, uh, right. Then right. it becomes... Jerry, I would quickly point out, though, you know, the scores came in under what was expected before House passage. And so Uh um, I think we need to be careful to make assumptions at this stage that that could could make or break something that's happening in the next few days. We had it. That was a good point of momentum. So. Yeah. Talk a little bit about this tax. I mean, it, it's uh, over 400000 He He wants to, you know, kind of get some money from that. Um, that's always an issue because the opponents say he's raising taxes again. But um, I remember just seeing, uh, I guess it was a, maybe a ProPublica report where it said, you know, there's these billionaires who aren't paying any taxes at all. They know how the tax laws work. Um, they, they get around there. I think I think I want to say, I want to say Bezos and and uh, Warren Buffett didn't pay anything. So, um, what's the um, what's the argument to to make this uh, to make this happen, Elizabeth? Well, well, of course. First, I would say you know Warren Buffett for years talked about tax equity, and it wasn't fair that his assistant, I think, paid a higher percentage or a higher rate in taxes ultimately than he did. So. That is exactly the kind of equity that Democrats are looking to create and to fix the inequities in the tax code here. Um, at the same time, I think especially in states like New York, which Kevin and I are very familiar with, they're working really hard to consider also things like state and local tax deductions, which, as we know, were capped and limited in the Trump era. And they have included in this bill important measure to reform the state and local tax deduction cap so that you can help families in areas where there are higher costs of living who have more extraordinary burdens also on the tax front to give them a little bit of relief in this bill as well. Um, So I think that, you know, a lot of what's happened here is not surprising and, um, I think it's an an important and balanced way to move forward policies that really, in the end, will help millions and millions of households and our overall economy. And I remember, Kevin, I remember, and I think it was Reagan who said, you cannot like the jobs and hate the job creators. And is there a feeling that... Um, we're doing that here with uh, taxing the taxing those with that salary over four hundred thousand. I think there's part of an argument, but sort of what Elizabeth is alluding to, I think you have to factor into the regions we're talking about because obviously four hundred thousand in North Dakota goes a lot further than four hundred thousand in California or New York. Um, and I think that's where you're trying to find that that sweet spot because yeah, you know, we're talking about billionaires who have the ability to, find ways to hide money and, you know, offshore, et cetera. They have that ability that middle class or even upper middle class have. And I think what also Elizabeth is alluding to when we talk about things like salt, 
I know that there's an argument that people don't like salt because they're going to benefit the rich. But yet in New York, you have firefighters, cops, people who make a certain amount of money in a higher area where that has a big impact on um, their pocketbook. So for me, it, I think for most people, it's about making sure that there's accountability and people are paying their fair share. I think the question is whether or not when you do some of these broad numbers and when you have a threshold, who's going to be truly impacted by it. And, and Elizabeth, you're uh, Nita Lowy, the woman that uh, you were top A to. She was the first woman on the House of Pro- as the House Appropriations Chairperson. And um, the tax rates, every president's going through these, these tax rates. How much needs to be done in fixing these tax, rate, the tax rates? Everybody plays with it. Every administration comes in and plays with this tax rate. What do you think needs to be done now, what's happening now on these tax rates? I think the approach they've taken in the legislation is a good and balanced one, as I said before. You're right that with every administration, this becomes a big debate in presidential campaigns and then with a new administration putting forward new priorities and should we see the majority flip um, on either side of the Capitol, I assume that would again become a focal point Um so, I, you know, I can't say to you today what I think exactly we should do on specific tax rates. That sort of has... Do they need to be adjusted, though, do you think? Yes. I mean, I think, as Kevin said, like, we need to make sure everyone pays their fair share. I think the challenge may be that people might agree on those words, but not necessarily agree on what fair share is. And so right. I think for Democrats, that is where we are focusing and trying to make sure that um, the burden on the ultra rich is greater than that on the hardworking families and those who are scrapping their way out of poverty and struggling to pay for and find childcare so that they can keep down a job. Um, And so I think that is sort of, it's not so much about a specific number as it is about what we can do to create the fairness and the equity and the opportunity in our country for all Americans. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, the reality is when you look at the Ways and Means Committee, I think everybody is for simplifying the tax code, looking for, you know, equity. But the problem is that you have these issues of unintended consequences. And once you start going down the path, tailoring some stuff, it just leads to further infighting. And it makes it harder and harder to reform the tax code the way that I think most people would agree that it should be done. We had Jim Steele on and Jim had won two Pulitzer Prizes, you know, studying the tax code. And I had always been a a fan of a flat tax, but he explained to me and handed me my head (laughs) saying that, you know, and it's, I think it gets back to your point, Kevin, you know, 20% of somebody making 25,000 versus 20% of a, of a billionaire, um, it's going to hurt them a lot more. And I think that's a little bit to the point you were making. Well, also, Jerry, I would mention you referenced Chairwoman Nita Lowy, the Appropriations Committee, first woman to chair there. And I can tell you that one of the fights we had year after year there was for the annual funding for the IRS. Mm-hmm. And the very partisan split would break out there of Democrats saying, we need to fund the IRS because there are taxpayers who need help completing mm-hmm their tax forms every year, people who are trying to pay their fair share and can't get through on the telephone and can't get through online. And we simply need to hire more people to help them do that. And also we want to hire people who can go after cheats and the people who are evading taxes and not paying their fair share. And you, we often would wind up in a debate over um, adequately funding the agency to do that because the IRS is obviously traditionally 
been um, the target. And so I think that when we think about um, tax reform, you know, as I said, I don't necessarily have a specific number. And Kevin talked about the Ways and Means Committee and their way in the equities and getting to the points on the legislation. But one of the fights that I saw bore out year after year would be this fight about adequately funding the IRS so that they could ensure people were paying their fair share. And, and that is an interesting angle on that also. And I stepped you on there, on you there, Kevin, a minute you were going to make a point. What was it? No, no, no. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. We can go on to the next topic. <laughs> How about those Phillies? Um, so um, the other the big legislation which got passed this week, and I think uh, you had some concern that it might be delayed, was the National Defense Authorization Act. And, you know, usually that's a pretty non-controversial um legislation i mean it's money and you pay you pay the military you do a thing. it it was a little more uh difficult this year what what caused that kevin well it, like you said too i mean it's been it's passed every year and i think there was some concern that you know could this be the year that it doesn't get done but tuesday night the house passed it and so the finalized version is about i think it was about 768 billion and it passed easily 363 to 70 so this bill is going to go to the Senate, um, so it's expected to pass there, um, and then they'll move on to the White House for President Biden's approval. But I think what you were seeing a lot had to be a lot more of the stuff going on behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And I think this was the idea that there was a few things going on. Certainly with the withdrawal in Afghanistan, there was more scrutiny going on on a few items. And I think it really behind closed doors, there were a lot of disagreements on you know, a few items that held things up much more so than in the past. Um, and and so eventually, I think when push came to pull and they realized we're getting closer to this end of the year deadline that we have to get it done, a number of provisions were removed, mm-hmm. um, such as, you know, having women uh, register with the selective service system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those were items that were pulled out in the hope of just trying to get more agreement and get it done quickly. So, um, what were yeah, some of those little... behind behind closed door issues? What were some of those? Because there was there was things in this bill, and and I think you mentioned um, there was there was talk about the sexual assault and you know cracking down on that. Um, I think there was some talk about um, trying to you know provide some racial reckoning. Sure, um, I mean a lot of it had to do with changing what they would some would deem the, the military culture, making a more equitable environment for uh, women and minorities. Um, you know, I mentioned to you about this movement with uh, the selective service system for registering uh, women for the draft and Senator Inhofe of Oklahoma did did not want that in at anything. And he was, you know, he's the top Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee. And he took credit for getting it out of there. Um, And, but you, you did, you had some members, some African-American members uh, who've also served. I I can think of uh, representative Anthony Brown of Maryland. Sure. Uh, he was he was urging members of the Congressional Black Caucus to oppose the bill. Um, and, and this is somebody who served in the army for 30 years. Yes. Um, but he felt that there was needed to be more about overhauling military justice, you know, combating extremism in the ranks. And those provisions were left out. And those were provisions he felt had to be included. And he was in a letter, I believe he sent to the Congressional Black Caucus. He was recommending that they vote no on it. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, there were a number of issues there, and I think the feeling was that are those issues going to prevent us from getting the bill passed and getting it done? 
Um, and I so think that's kind of, I mean, what it came down to. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, live to fight another day kind of thing. Um, uh, no, no, yeah. Un- yeah, unfortunately, that happens all the time. But I yeah. think that's that's where we're – because you realize so many things are going on right now and both inside the Capitol and outside without things that you have to worry about that um, sometimes, you know, you know, I think Elizabeth and I have talked about this previously, you know, getting 70% of, you want, of what you want is sometimes a good day. You know, yes. you can't be 100% yes. of everything. And that's, <laughs> and that's sort of – you know, for me, that's what embodies uh, Congress. It's it's yes. a legislative body, and it, it's, you're dealing <laughs> yes. with compromise. And it's the old cliche about watching sausage being made. But Elizabeth, you handled a lot of these uh, appropriations legislations. You saw it uh, from the front row. What was it about this? Uh, what they call the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act. What did you see about this that was different than other appropriations legislation that yeah, moves forward? Well, this bill is um, actually sort of the authorizing counterpart to the defense appropriations bill, which um, will be considered between now and a deadline in February. Congress passed a continuing resolution to keep government open at the December 3rd deadline we had. So we have until February to negotiate that. This was the authorization bill that puts forward the amounts of money we're allowed to now um, appropriate in the discretionary spending bill for the Department of Defense and also changes a lot of big policies that Kevin um, just outlined and talked about. You know, I think that the NDAA was a little bit a victim of the clock this time. We've had so much happening this year with reckonciliation, especially Mm -hmm. on tight frame timeframes in the recent months. Um, NDAA hanging out there until December alone created a challenge because it would inevitably be sort of lumped in with all these different end of the year uh, pieces of legislation to either extend some sort of expiring program or tax credit or whatever the case may be along with this obviously big piece of legislation we want to get done for Build Back Better and the debt limit that has to be dealt with by December 15th. So I think that some of the sticking points and delay were just a vic- being a victim of the clock. There mm-hmm. also, you know, were a lot of technical and procedural rules that we won't get into related to some of the amendments that were introduced in the Senate right. that delayed us for a little while too. And in, in terms of um, one amendment, Senator Rubio put forward that actually could have tanked the bill because of in DC, what's called a quote blue slip problem. That is just a procedural hurdle in terms of that amendment having needed to be a policy that would originate in the house, not the Senate. So um, in the end, I think everyone is pleased that we have passed in the house on a major bipartisan basis, this important legislation, and it won't hang out there until next year, though, even if it had that, you know, would not have been, um, a crisis for us to pass it early in the new year. And we talk about um, this Build Back Better legislation and Joe Biden was in the Senate forever. He knows how this all works. He comes in with a $3 trillion bill. Does he do it knowing that, okay, I want, I'm going to say $3 trillion, but I really need $2 trillion. He gets people like Manchin saying, oh, I'm going to cut it, I'm going to cut it. Do you think that's the, the strategy he used, Kev? Oh, sure. I think everybody tries to know that they're not going to get everything they want, like I just said. So, yeah, they're going to they're going to aim high. And um, just like any piece of legislation that you want, you want to get the max you can. So, sure. You know, I think 
Would, did they have a set number that they were looking at? No, but I think they were just trying to make sure that certain programs were definitely going to be included. And if those certain programs are going to be included, what's a what's a livable number mm-hmm. that they could live with? And I think that 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 factors into the the process as well. So yeah, no doubt. Nancy Pelosi in the middle of it again. Um, just uh, amazing what she did with the Affordable Care Act, kind of dragging that over the line. Uh, what's your challenge right now with uh, with this controversial uh, legislation? Well, you know, I never underestimate Speaker Pelosi. She's done mm-hmm. a, a fantastic job legislatively on so many different fronts, and this year has just outperformed even her previous stellar records. She's done a fabulous job getting this over to the Senate. We will see what happens in the Senate when it comes back again. I go back to what I said earlier in our discussion, which is that the Democrats want to pass Build Back Better. And we understand that may may require more tough choices along the way, but a lot have already been made. And so we feel like we're in a good place to get that done. And, and I should um, also say, I think Majority yeah. Leader Schumer is doing a fantastic job, and the two of them have been great partners in this and and working with the White House. She's and, good. Yeah, <laughs> she is. So, you know, she I think she wanted to get out, and uh, she was actually kind of, you know, really looking forward to leaving. Um, and then Donald Trump won, and she felt she had to stay. Um, I guess she stays through the midterms. Does she Does she leave at the, after that, do you think, Kev? I, I would think so. I just think, you know, she must be exhausted by now. Yes. And, um, and it, you know, I think like Elizabeth said, you know, I, I've always said this too, and I've said this to you earlier on a podcast, is just you underestimate her at your own peril. Yes. Um, she's phenomenal at vote counting, cobbling together votes. Um, I just don't know if, you know, again, it, there really is a big difference between being in the majority and being the minority. And if the midterms turn out the way that Republicans think they will, um, and with a number of retirements already happening, you know, you do wonder if this this would be it for her. Um, but again, I, I I wouldn't bet money on it uh, either way. <laughs> so uh, the other issue this week, uh, Bob Dole passed away uh, in in his late nineties, and uh, just wanted to get your thoughts. I know you're both House people, but uh, just your thoughts on Bob Dole, Elizabeth. Oh, I would be happy to talk about Senator Dole. Um, There was a beautiful ceremony in the Capitol to welcome him there for the last time with the president, the vice president, the leadership in the Congress. He was a public servant of the highest caliber who earned respect across the aisle and across the Capitol. Um, You know, I think he was a model for so many people in the Congress for many decades, quite the statesman a hero in so many different ways. Um, You know, I think he is seen by many as a war hero and a stalwart Republican. You mentioned my time earlier with Congresswoman Nita Lowy from New York. She shared the Appropriations Committee and also its subcommittee um, that passed the foreign aid bill each year. And then one of the other annual funding bills, we have the McGovern Dole Food for Education Program that's named for Senator Dole and Senator McGovern for their tireless efforts together to eradicate child hunger. Um, So I think one of his many legacies that is something we saw year after year in the appropriations process that was a priority for her was this initiative that reflects, you know, recognition of the moral imperative for the United States government to help vulnerable people around the world meet basic needs. That's, of course, also 
in our national security interest that's you know founded in a basic understanding that if children can't eat they can't learn you can't go to school hungry and expect them to be successful academically and then in life and so i think that there are so many ways in addition to this that his legacy will carry on and hope that all of us in this very partisan environment take a moment to pause and honor not just his memory but also the legacy that he can have and how we work with one another moving forward. And Kevin, you and I had talked about this before. He really came from the old Senate. It was the, it was the old uh, adage, you know, we can argue all day and then we go out to get a beer. So he was one, right, of, exactly. those, uh, he was one of those very uh, super powerful negotiators, uh, always in the scrap. Um, and then how did you see him? Yeah, same way. You know, it's funny you just said that because I was thinking that where we've talked in the past, there was this idea that you can, have a, you know, you can disagree on something, but still have a beer with somebody. And for me, you know, he really prioritized principles over party. And, you know, opponents weren't enemies. Mm-hmm. And I think that was something that I really took away from him. I mean, you can go into all the things of his, his war hero, a patriot, all that. But really, for me, the essence of what he was, was just prioritizing principles and the common good and what Elizabeth has alluded to, because I think now you're saying what he represented in the old days was that, you know, Congress used to be measured by, you know, the bills you passed and the constituents you reached. And now we seem to be in this on both sides. It seems to be measured by attracting attention. And even if it's negative, just generating outrage and yeah, good, good publicity um, or bad publicity is still publicity. Yeah. If it increases <laughs> fundraising, funders of supporters. Yeah. Voters. Yeah, yes. Yeah. You know, there were, yeah. There were two things that, that stuck in my mind and I had a chance to cover him uh, when he ran for president against Bill Clinton. And the one thing was there was a great picture where he went up to George Bush's casket laying in state and he was just, you know, he was in his wheelchair and we said, and I thought, mm-hmm. God, that must be such a fearful thing to look at a, you know, someone uh, of your generation of your, ilk and and to think wow I'm, I'm i'm almost there you know that must be a pretty scary but the other thing that was really cool about him is um he used to go down to the world war ii memorial every saturday and he yeah. would greet all the veterans coming off the bus and i think he did that well into his 90s and it was just such a cool thing and elizabeth you you kind of hit it i was reading he was the, he endorsed richard nixon and he endorsed donald trump because he was a republican stalwart and uh, but um the legislation you talked about created food stamps right yep yeah and that was uh again like you say just a major uh yeah yeah because i mean that's again coming from his own experience growing up in the dust bowl you know and that motivated him and that was part of it it was just this idea that you don't treat certain issues from a a partisan lens that that's what unites us that we you know especially with correct yeah yeah and and like you're saying too you know the fact that he was saluting bush that that they were you know technically political rivals for so long yes but that's that's what i'm saying at the end of the day you know you know george bush was a political rival but he wasn't an enemy and there was the respect there and i think that's for me like we seem to quarrel more than we try and problem solve now. Yes, yes, yes. And hopefully, uh, as Elizabeth says, hopefully it's a, a signal that we got to get back to that. You know, we're, we're just yeah, in that, he, that situation right now. Yeah, that hopefully he, he spurs and encourages people to move forward on that. 
I want to thank you both. It was a great conversation. And, um, you know, I, I like the fact that you're able to tell our listeners just a little bit about the behind the scenes workings that I guess a lot of people, and we, we got to see a lot and maybe we got to see too much, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was a, uh, it, it is, uh, it, it's how the, it's how the legislation is made. And, uh, tell us a little bit about your organizations, Kevin. Uh, so I, after finishing up with Congressman Peter King, I, um, uh, with Ambrose Partners here in DC, and we help small companies, nonprofits uh, navigate DC. Um, and that's primarily what I'm working on. And Elizabeth. Sure, I am with Resolution Public Affairs with three other amazing women who work in a similar fashion as Mr. Fogarty with nonprofits, trade associations, private companies to help them navigate the policy world in Washington, D.C. Excellent. And well, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, always love talking about uh, the Congress and the uh, almost like a sports game. You know, you got the, the <laughs> other team and this team and you know, a whole bit. So I appreciate well, it. Hope it keeps getting back to that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, we right. appreciate you having us. Thank <laughs> you so all. much. Not it was great all. to be with you, Jerry. Sure. And if you would like you to will. comment, oh, you too. If you would like to comment or have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to me at retailpoliticsjer at gmail.com. And we have also reached the threshold of 6,000 weekly listeners across the nation and around the world. We appreciate all your loyalty. And if uh, you'd like to advertise on the podcast, please reach out to me and that email retailpoliticsjerry at gmail, and I'll get you to the right folks. We will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.